What is the evidence of true spirituality? What is legalism? Why is it dangerous? Why is the Bible necessary for salvation? What is it that makes Christianity the truth and the way against all other religions? Is the church really a place or is it a people? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? How can we know what translation of the Bible is actually correct? Does God want me to be happy? What is John 3.16 really say? What's wrong with the Word of Faith movement? Am I able to ask God for immense wealth? Is there sufficient knowledge for salvation in the Bible? Maybe you've had questions similar to these, or maybe you have a question that needs to be answered. Well, your wait is now over. The weekly podcast of Theology Answers can be your guide to answering questions about Scripture, theology, church history, contextual criticism. Join us as we peel through the pages of Scripture and find the answers that you're looking for. You can find us online at TheologyAnswers.com, and you can ask your questions there. We are a podcast as a part of the Striving for Eternity Christian podcast community. Join us there at strivingforeternity.org. Welcome to today's episode, episode number 12 of Theology Answers. I'm James, and with me, as always, is Brother Edward Dalcor. We are your hosts, and we like to talk about theological things. We like to teach the Scripture and answer your questions. Next week, we're going to do a Q&A session, and we're going to have opportunity for you all, the listeners, to ask us questions ahead of time. We don't have live call-in yet, so you need to go to theologyanswers.com and put your questions there, or you can email us respectively at our websites. We'll tell you what those are at the end of the broadcast. But today we're going to be discussing, in the continuation of what we have been talking about, something that is, as we've said last week and the time before and the time before, is extremely controversial. And I say that because, in reality, the gospel is controversial to the natural man. The gospel is controversial to the religious culture of our day. The gospel is controversial to everything because it confronts the very nature of man being able to do anything to affect his own good and doing anything that can affect his own salvation, etc., the age-old question that every culture from the beginning of time has always had is, who is this God? Is there a God, and how can I approach him? And that approach could be something as far as, I don't believe in him and I refuse, so I want to, I want to prove that he doesn't exist to the place where some people have come and, saying, and, and said, how is it that I can be right before God? Well, we're here to talk about exactly how that works today. What is it that the scriptures, that the Christian scriptures teach us about how we are right with God? And of course, we've done an episode, brother, on justification. We've talked about uh, the limited or particular redemption, limited atonement. And we're going to do an episode in the weeks to come about preservation or being sustained in the faith. But today, we're going to deal with the empowering reality of irresistible grace, irresistible grace. And it is um, sometimes even in Reformed or Calvinistic circles, it's even misunderstood. A lot of times people have, 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 have just sort of mistaught it, and even so, sometimes people just ignore it altogether. And we start by defining this. I'm going to just sort of define it in brief, and then, Brother Edward, I'll let you sort of take it from there, and we can do a recap of total depravity, and we can just sort of hit this thing. I want to say, too, listeners, that as you hear us talk and teach, you need to understand that these are not exhaustive. We can't take in 45 minutes to an hour and really get everything that needs to be done. And as we uh, talk back in two, we will miss a lot of things. We will overcover things that aren't necessarily as essential as other areas. So this is where you can begin to become involved in these podcasts. And you can start saying, hey, what about this aspect of it? Or did you mention this? Or you might have misunderstood what we said. Or maybe we misspoke. It could happen. So we want you to engage with us. So we open that door. We promise you several things. One, we will always do our best to use the context of Scripture to prove what we say. And two, you will never be shamed or ridiculed or laughed at. We do love to teach. And we want all of you, even those who do not believe, to have the opportunity to have a safe space for discussion and dialogue on theological things. So for today, irresistible grace. What does this mean? Well, what we can do to define it is to say this, that God 
in his grace, all <laughs> basically everything that he desires to take place in the sense or in, in, in the um in the sense of redemption of his individual elect people will inevitably come to pass, so much so that the work of his mercy and love and kindness in Jesus Christ, grace, that's what that word means, is irresistible. In other words, it cannot be pushed away. It cannot be refused. All for whom Christ died will, will have an effectual grace applied to them, given to them, empowering them, and they will believe. So irresistible grace is the reality that God, when he, when he gives grace to his people, it does the work that it was intended to do, and that is that they believe on Jesus Christ. And so it has a lot of implications. There are a lot of people who would say, well, irresistible grace means that we don't have a choice. We can't resist God. Well, it is true in some sense, and we can talk about some of those. But I think in a, in a basic way, that is how we need to go forward tonight on understanding irresistible grace. So, brother, I'll let you add to that or correct that or, or whatever you think. Yeah, that was a good description, um, and it's a simple description, and it has its basis, of course, in um, uh, monergistic um, workings of God. What do we mean by monergistic workings of God? Meaning God works alone. That's right. um, you're not talking about you know the loving acts you do, and, and even though um, God ordains all things, we know that. But in in, in grace and justification and salvation from A to Z in regeneration. Um, in the in inward calling, this is God working alone. The work of God, simply put, <clears throat> making an unregenerate and bondage to sinner, um, unbondage to sin, um, spiritually alive. It's, it's the yes. working of God alone that makes an unregenerate sinner spiritually alive, or we say, uh, we use the English term, it, it regenerates him, enabling him now to answer the gospel call and come to Christ. And when you're made alive, you always answer in the positive sense. As we'll see later in John 6, Jesus says, he uses the future indicative, all that the Father gives to me, he says, they will, hexay, they will come, right, to me. Yes. They will come, and he says, I'll never cast anyone out. God's salvific grace has the power to intrude upon man's rebellion, upon the unsaved man's rebellion. It really does. And the biblical doctrine of irresistible grace or effectual calling um, cannot be fully apprehended, as we we were just discussing this. It can't be fully realized, I think, unless the condition of man, unsaved man, is biblically understood. And what did we talk about last last week? Yeah, total depravity, inability. Total depravity. Yeah. Yeah, it's total inability. Man and is dead. I mean, <laughs> is he, yeah, you mean he's not terminally ill? No. Nope. Or he's not sick, but he's nope. he's really dead. Okay. Nope. Um, and now, if man is dead, where does that put us, though, as a saved person? That's right. Are we still dead? We're just struggling with sin, or... Or did something happen? Well, I mean, we're 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 no longer dead because we've been made alive, and so though we will war against sin, as Paul teaches in Romans seven, uh, we're no longer we're no longer in bondage to it. So it doesn't mean that we right. won't sin, but it it means that we're no longer in bondage, not only to the curse of sin, but also to the consequence of sin, which is death. We've been made spiritually alive, where we were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of humanity, according to Paul in Ephesians 2, because we were dead in our trespasses and sin. So we are we were spiritually dead, and now we who are in Christ have been made spiritually alive. That's how we are in Christ, because if we weren't made alive, we would have never believed. <laughs> and so the so, re- regeneration. So, so you're saying that unregenerate man... Is, spirit, is so spiritually dead, I mean, completely spiritually dead, total depravity, as we teach. Are you saying he has no ability to come to Christ or please God? None whatsoever. And and the Scripture would say in many places where where the lost, and, and of course these, are, these letters are speaking to regenerate people, you once were dead, and you who were dead, you who were dead in your sins, you who were the uncircumcision of your flesh— 
what does it say in Ephesians and Colossians? Paul say, God made you alive. God made you alive. Peter says the same thing. God caused us to be born again. Jesus says the same thing to Nicodemus in John 3. You must be born again. Nicodemus was a brilliant theologian, the teacher of all Israel, and yet he could not in his wisdom, even with the Old Testament revelation, that's something we also said we were going to do in the future broadcast about the gospel of the Old Testament. It was sufficient for Nicodemus' salvation, but he could not confess Christ as even coming from God effectually because he had not been born again. So that's where Jesus really teaches this idea of regeneration. And when God does this work, it is effectual grace. And we were dead, and we have been made alive. John 11 uh, one of my favorite places in Scripture, when Lazarus is mm. dead for four mm. days. We should have talked about this last week, but he was dead for four days because there was a there was writing in the in the Jewish writings, uh, the Mishnah and other other places that thought that the spirit could linger for three days, and so Jesus then on the fourth day when he goes to that tomb after four days, they said. You know, sir, we can't take that stone away because there will be an odor because his body would have already begun to decay. But Jesus mm. says what? Come out, Lazarus. Come out. And this dead man in this tomb was made alive and heard the voice of his shepherd and followed him. He didn't hear it and think about it. And wonder, you know, you know, it'd probably be better to go on out there and be with Jesus than to stay in here. No, he was made alive and he followed after the words of Christ because he was alive with the Holy Spirit. And this is another podcast we could get into in the future, but I've said that three times now. But, you know, when Paul talks about the spirit in Romans 8, the spirit of righteousness, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God, the fullness of God, as he says in Ephesians 3, indwells us and fills us with all this fullness. The righteousness that we have is only ours because it is the perfection of Jesus and his righteousness living in us, imputed to us, and it is not our own. So we are so dead in our sins that God does not even correct our flesh. <laughs> We're not made righteous in our own person. We wear the righteousness of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And the only way that's applied to us is that God causes us to be born again irresistibly it's something we cannot do when he must do it to us and for us right um that's a good illustration of lazarus uh, you know he 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 heard you know god would have to make his ear gates open absolutely make him alive first in order that he would hear and come out so yes. he makes him alive so he comes out you know and so I think um, uh, the, the irresistible grace or the effectual calling cannot be fully realized unless one is absolutely um, clear on man's state uh, before he was he was saved. He has no ability, as we saw last week in John six forty four and other places. And one of my favorite passages is, uh, or that really defined this, is John eight forty four, when Jesus says. Um, well, in, 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 in 43, he says, why don't you understand what I'm saying? Because you can't. You cannot. If you choose not to, you can't. You, can. yeah, you cannot. And then in 44, I love it. He says, you are your, you are of your father, the devil. Yes. And you, uh, you will, the term is, uh, thaleta. You will, thaleta, you, you will to do the lust Epithemia, the lust of your father. So that's yes. where your will is at as an unsafe person. And as Paul describes the unsafe people as completely uh, dead, as we went over to these uh, passages last, last week, particularly in Romans 8, no ability. Not, not that they choose not to, right? That's right. But they have no uh, ability. They have no ability so, and they choose not to <laughs> because they're spiritually it, it, dead. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, he their will is captivated, yep. you know, captivated, right. I should say. That's why I love, you know, what, what Paul says in Second Thessalonians two thirteen. When we talked about this passage, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning through for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit 
faith and uh, faith in the truth. And um, he chose us. He, uh, and I always point this out, the middle temple, Alata, he chose you for himself. Yes. From the beginning, for what? For salvation. For salvation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Same with, um, I think it's in, uh, Timothy 1.9. He, he called us with a holy calling, not according to works, but yes. through his own purposes and grace. Um, so we have to understand um, uh, when we say effectual calling or irresistible grace, um, we are talking about making when a when a dead person, spiritually dead, is made alive. He does come. He now sees Christ. He now wants Christ. But James, isn't everybody called? I I, I see a lot of passages in the mm. Bible, like in, in Acts seventeen. You know, commands the Paul says, you know, I, I I'm commanded to to uh, or he commands the world to repent, the whole world to repent. Yeah. I don't think he just. I don't think in that context he just meant Jews and Gentiles. No. I think there's no. a call for the whole world, but how do we? I mean, isn't there two calls? Well, the, we we have in, in this in this thing that we're going into right now the two calls. People say there's the effectual call, and then there's the external or general call. So that if you and I are out on the street and we're preaching the gospel, we're reading the word of God, people would say, "Well, that's a general call." And so we're calling anybody with human ears to come and believe on Christ. But the Scripture actually says that the external call is not even given to all men, though it may come to their ears as Jesus commands the Pharisees in John 5 and and, um, right, and John right. 7 and John 8 to believe in Him. They cannot. Indeed, they will not. They cannot because they are not of Him. So the call that Jesus gives externally in the visible, physical voice to their physical ears is still not intended to be extended to them because they do not belong to him. Now, where do we see this? I, I mean, we could we could talk about the Old Testament a lot, but let's let's just think about Cain and Abel for a moment. Okay, Cain was the the first son, and then what happens is he kills his brother. Paul, the apostolic authority of the New Testament, trumps all misunderstandings of the Old Testament. We know by the teaching of the apostles, what God intended in the explanation and the exposition of the Old Testament. And, you know, Jesus corrected the Jews' understanding of the Old Testament constantly because they were wrong in nearly everything. Even though they got some doctrines right, they could not even apply them because they pointed to him. But when we look at Cain and Abel, Cain killed Abel because his brother was righteous and did righteous works, and he was not. And even though they did the exact same thing, they offered in obedience the exact same type of sacrifice, their first fruits, Cain was not of God. So God rejected Cain, and then God drove Cain away. He was driven from the countenance of God. But where does the gospel stay? Through the genealogy of Seth. Same thing with the idea of Abraham. Abram was called out of Ur, a Chaldean, worshiping nature, worshiping the moon up on the ziggurat there in Ur, which it still stands today. One of those ziggurats is still there today. But God called Abraham out of unbelief and caused him to walk in faith, by faith, and believe in God. And through Abraham, God said, the world, all people groups of the world, my sheep, my children, whom I choose for myself, will be my people, and it will come through your seed, Abraham, your seed. And yet we see all throughout the Old Testament, all the way up through Jesus Christ. Jesus, what does John say in the prologue? He came to his own people, talking about what? The ethnic people. But his own did not receive him. But all who did receive him, that is, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, not because of the will of the mind, nor the choice of the mind, nor the blood of their genealogy, nor the flesh, but by the will of God. By the will of God. And, and, and so the external call, then, is not even given to all men. This is not a universal so and 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 with that there's no universal call even through the proclamation of the gospel because really the gospel in its giving is not a call. See, we live in a day and age, brother, and this uh you might not have thought about this uh but I'll I'll go there and if we've got time you can tell me we can if not we'll we'll move somewhere else but we we live in a day and age where the gospel has become an offer. 
And would you believe in Jesus? Can you please believe in Jesus? Will you please come to Jesus? But you don't see that in the scriptures. Scriptures teach us that the gospel, or by, by implication, it, it shows us that the gospel and the narrative is a proclamation. Jesus came and proclaimed salvation. He didn't offer it. He came and proclaimed it. This is salvation. Yahweh has given salvation. Uh, God saves this is the year of Jubilee. God saves. Uh, here's the lamb that takes away the sins, takes away the sins. You see, it's an effectual taking away of the sins, not offers forgiveness, makes forgiveness. So this is, this is a problem, a misnomer, if we can, about the evangel of our culture. People think it's an offer, but it's a proclamation. So Jesus proclaims the gospel, and the apostles proclaim the gospel, and the evangelists of the first century and beyond proclaim the gospel, which is God has saved his people from their sins through the work of Jesus Christ, the God-man, whose obedience is accounted to us and who and our guilt has been accounted to him. And he has died for us, and he has been raised to life for us. So salvation then, even in the external call, is only a proclamation that God has saved his people. And the only ones who can actually hear it, and the only effect that it will have, are for the elect. <laughs> and that's, right. that's a rub right there. So I don't see two calls. There is an external call, but it's really not extended to all men. It's only to the sheep of Christ. Come. Come to your Savior. So the, Come to your sheep. Because a lot, of people would, a, lot, a lot of people would be confused because they see passages like, for many are called, few are chosen. Yeah. In Acts 7, I think it's 51, you know, Stephen says, how long are you resisting the whole... This is what Arminians use. How long uh, are you... Will you resist the Holy Spirit? And, and, and so on and so forth. So they would see they would they would turn it to uh, the the universal offer, and um, while uh, distorting or not considering um, what we mean by calling or inward calling to the elect and so on and so forth, or Paul's proclamation when what he said in Acts seventeen, you know, he commands the world to repent. So these are not intended for uh, the elect, of course. But um, a lot of people would be confused about calls. Um, and most Armeni Arminians, of course, would reject flat out that there's even an inward, you know, efficacious call, what we're talking about wow. today. Right, that's right. They just flat out reject it. Yeah. I would say, you know, to that, um, you, you know, passages, First uh, Corinthians 18, or 118, right? The, the message of the cross, the word of the cross is what, moron, right? It's foolishness yeah, to those right. who, are, who are perishing. So they, they, they can hear the message of the cross, but it's foolishness to them because they're perishing. That's right. They're in the reprobate category, the uh, total depraved or total inability category. That's right. Um, but to us, Paul says, it's the power Yes. Um, or who are being saved is the power, the power of, God. of God. And since the wisdom of God, uh, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, That's right. but God was well pleased for this, this foolish. And we know it's foolishness to the world, because when I preach Christ crucified on the streets, and Jesus, I, I, I'm actually presenting Christ, the, the carpenter, who is my presentation speaks of Christ. Yeah, a carpenter, but he was a creator of all things. He was God in the flesh. <laughs> That's right. He was the second person of the Trinity. Yes. And unless you believe in him, you'll die in your sins. That's the that's the proclamation that that's that's, right. that's given. But people, when they hear, as Paul says, this proclamation, what is it? It's completely foolishness. It's foolish. To them, yes. That Christ is God. And that you need to believe in him and all these things. I think that's what we mean when there, there's you know, they can hear you know, obviously the proclamation, but of course it's like, um, it's like anything else. Um, when we talk about this, it's intended for the elect. It's efficacious for the elect yes. because the others, they hear, but they don't hear. You know yes. what I'm saying? Right. They can hear, but they don't, they don't hear like Lazarus heard, they, that's right. you know, in that, in that sense. And basically that's what we're dealing with. The efficacious, the efficacious, irresistible grace and um, I think which also it's a good point to make before we get into it, a couple, a few texts, is that um, 
and even even some Calvinists, I think, uh, we were talking about this, when someone first embraces the doctrines of grace, they're really uh, a hyper-Calvinist for a while until yes. they're, they're adequately taught. You know, they'll say things like, you know, God just forces you to be saved. Yeah, you know, right. they really don't know what they're saying. And what we mean by hyper-Calvinist, anything beyond the doctrines of the biblical teachings of doctrines of grace. There's no formal definition of hyper-Calvinism. I mean, it's absurd to say there's some there's some creed on this is hyper-Calvinism. Look at the words linguistically, the meaning hyper beyond, beyond. Calvinism. Right. It's simple dimple. I think middle school kids can understand what hyper and then another word means. You know, but anyways, here's what I think a lot of folks. Um, and of course, um, people that do not embrace the doctrines of grace, that God is the one who grants faith and repentance and the ability to believe. Right, right. Do you find that a lot of people, are just, they just don't consider that God actually grants these things? Yeah. About faith? I mean, repentance? Are you serious? I thought... I thought, like, when I sinned last week or yes, it, when I repented, I thought that was all me. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, I mean, that's what we think, you know. But it says, I only repent because God granted me the ability to repent. Correct. Right? Um, and then when you uh, look at, two, eight, nine. Right. And when you look at repentance, um, we, we need to know, we need to keep in mind that what that, when we see the word repent and believe in the, in the, in the New Testament, it is on the heels of a gospel proclamation of what God did through the work of Jesus Christ, his son. And people will come and say, what must I do to be saved? Like they said to Peter, he said, repent. So let's translate that into our common vernacular today. What must I do to be saved? Change the way you're thinking. Change everything you're thinking now about what you can do to be saved. That's repentance. Change everything you think right now about what is and is not sin and that you are a sinner. Think about these things in a different way. So Peter's saying you need to change your mind, which can't be done. All right. And then he says, believe the gospel, because in order to to believe in one thing, you have to stop thinking the other way, correct? So repentance is all about what one thinks with their mind, and the, the, the antithesis of changing my mind from my self-righteousness or my ignorance or my inability to go, this is absurd, or the foolishness of the cross, is to believe in the gospel that was proclaimed to me. Now, this belief is not something where a man can just come up and go, okay, okay, I believe it works for me like that, or I believe that Jesus is Messiah, or like so many people say, yeah, I believe Jesus died for my sins, and they don't know anything different in that. So when we say repent, it is granted because in the dead nature, in the sinful, depraved, enabled, unabled nature, we cannot change the way we think about even how we are going to come to God. Like when I opened up the broadcast tonight, we talked about, you know, from the beginning of time, people are looking how they might approach some divine being. And the Jews of Jesus' day had that answer. We know how to approach God. You can't tell us that we're in sin. And then in John 8, they say that the Bible says that they believed in Jesus. But Jesus turned and said to them, you shall surely die in your sins. Now, see, that insulted them because they had not been granted a new life. They had not been born again, so they could not see in their mind several things. One, they could not see Jesus as truly God and truly man. Secondly, they could not see this message that he brought from God that he that they needed salvation. Thirdly, they could not stomach the idea that Jesus Christ could forgive them of their sin because, fourthly, they could not see sin in themselves. So all of this work of repentance is the irresistible, effectual grace of God where he rebirths his people as he sees fit, when he sees fit, and he always will call his people to believe. And he will cause them to believe. Uh, but like you said, you know, they're not, we're not kicking and screaming because when my mind was made right by the Holy Spirit and I could see Jesus through spiritual eyes, I desired him, believed in him, loved him. And the great thing about that is 
even when that faith that I have, and even when that desire that I have, and even when that love that I have wanes or is weak, he is faithful and he cannot deny himself. So salvation is all of God. It's all of God. And there is no way that the sheep of God will ever be cast out. So, you know, this, there is a, a misunderstanding sometimes where they go above and beyond the doctrines of grace. And just for our listeners, you know, doctrine means teaching. Grace is the mercy of God. It is, encompasses all the work of redemption, which is all by grace. It's all by mercy and kindness. It's not about what we as the creature does to earn or to cause God to do anything, um, but it's all about what God has done only in by the counsel of his own will in his own mercy and kindness. So, you know, the doctrines of grace is not some theological system that was made up during the Reformation. It's the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of grace of God, the teaching of the grace of God that the apostles taught and that Jesus taught in the Scripture. That is what we mean when we say that. So, you know, to go beyond that and say, well, there's there's, there's that, there's the other, um, you know, a lot of people just have to grow up and mature a little bit. And, they, and that's, we'll give a little plug here. That's why it's so important to be in the local assembly so that we can have accountability with our brothers and sisters in the Lord and grow in the knowledge of the Word. In a, a solid local assembly. Solid, yes, that teaches, <laughs> the, that teaches the doctrines of grace in our... In our uh, there you go. Yeah. So many doctrines are, you know, have their biblical doctrines, have their foundations on the doctrines of grace, you know. Um, yes. And ontologically have their foundation um, on the ontological trinity, to be sure. Um, so we know in the scripture that faith and belief are a gift. You know, Ephesians yes. 2, 8 and 9, you've been saved through faith. Uh, Romans it's not 3. Yourself, it's a gift from God. Romans 3. And um, the ability to believe is also a gift. Uh, Philippians one twenty nine. it's been granted to you, right, for Christ's yes. sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Um, the word granted, granted, and I mentioned this before, charizomai, um, notice the prefix there, charis, grace. Mm-hmm. It's been granted by it's a grace gift by by God to give you the ability to believe in a person in hell to reprobate now. He doesn't have the ability to believe. He never got this. He was never granted this grace gift. It's a yes. it, interesting, James. This is one of Paul's favorite words he uses for the for um, translated forgiveness that he uses for forgiveness. Charisma is the same same word. That interesting, granted. Mm. Um, and we know in Acts, uh, what is it? Acts chapter five, um, that repentance. I think five thirty or thirty one. That repentance is something that is is granted as well. And there's also other passages. I think Acts eleven and um, and Second um, uh, Timothy two twenty five and twenty six. Yes. So the unregenerated man, unregenerated man is dead in bondage of sin. He has no ability to come to Christ. And uh, the inward calling, the irresistible grace calling, is a necessity. It's effectual. It's irresistible. And what it does, it change. One thing, it, it changes your will. And we were talking about how is how do you think irresistible grace is most distorted, even with new Calvinists, you know, um, not to be confused with new Calvinism, but the, a person who just uh, becomes aware of the doctrines of grace, of course, by the grace of God, he became aware of these biblical doctrines. But sometimes he sees uh, irresistible grace or the effectual calling as God just forcing you to be saved. Right. How do we respond to that, that misnomer? Well, it, one is that the Scripture doesn't give anything to that nature uh, to, to teach that. The Scripture doesn't say that. The Scripture uses the idea—and see, so you have to keep in mind, too, the idea of irresistible as an adjective was was in response to the remonstrance of Dort. And so um, they wanted to counter the unbiblical notion that there was this prevenient grace that went out to all people. God made everybody able— he woke them up just enough that their ears would work, and they then were given grace, the grace of God, through the proclamation or the offer of the gospel, and then it was up to them to choose whether to believe or not to believe, whether they wanted to be saved or not to be saved. And so in the knee-jerk response to a lot of people who, I mean, we're, what, 500 years? Uh, well, not quite, but what are we? Well, about 400-something years 
away from that when Irresistible Grace was first penned. And we prefer to call it effectual grace, this the present day. But irresistible has it it has implications for some young believers when they start to go. Well, you know what? I mean, I was laying in the bed and I hated God, and all of a sudden I woke up preaching, um, and there was nothing I could do about it. I didn't know what was coming out of my mouth. And it's not quite that absurd, but I do hear people use it in that way that they, they'll they actually preach that. They'll say, you know, this is how God's going to save you. You're just going to hate him one day, and then one day you're going to love him. Now, that may be true that that is true of you when God does save you. Of course, that's true. But there is a giving of the gospel. There is a working of the Holy Spirit. There is an inward call that always results in salvation and the Holy Spirit bringing life to you. And then in your cognitive mind, you willfully and joyfully see you joyfully believe on Christ. It is a beautiful joy that looks ridiculous to the world. It looks foolish to the Greek, and it's a stumbling block to the to the Jew, because we who have been made alive, we willfully believe. We willfully believe. We've been made alive, and faith is a gift of God from that new life. It is the outcome. The wages of sin is death. The, the, you know, the, the fruitfulness of the flesh is death. The fruitfulness of, of living according to the flesh and unbelief is that we're blind. We cannot see. We do not seek after God. Nobody cares. Nobody's righteous. Even those who appear to be righteous, they're self-righteous and doing something that affects their own standing before God that the Bible says is worthless. It has no measure. It has no, it's not going to pause God for one minute to consider how good we've been or how much we've worked. But the Bible says God has caused us to be born again. He's made us alive. It, it talks about this and just in the narrative of Scripture. What does he say? Um, that, you know, God in, in, in cha- chapter 4 of Second Corinthians, that God has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in face of Jesus Christ. In the contrast that those who cannot see the gospel are perishing because they can't see the gospel because God hasn't shown in their hearts. So, and then in Acts 13, what does it say? The Gentiles heard about what? The faith of those Gentile people. I mean, um, excuse me, when the Gentiles heard about the, um, oh goodness, about the gospel going to them, what does it say? They rejoiced and glorified the word of God and as many as were appointed to eternal life believe. So we don't see where people are screaming and crying, Oh, God, I didn't want to believe. I can't stand this. I mean, these people were rejoicing at the, at the new birth that they just experienced because they loved Christ when they could see him with true spiritual eyes. That which is flesh is flesh. That which is the spirit is spirit is spirit. And you cannot see the kingdom. You cannot enter the kingdom unless you're born of the spirit. You're born again. Uh, Acts 16. Remember Lydia? You know, what is it? What does it say? Uh, the yeah, Lord, just... the Lord opened her heart that she would pay attention to what was said by Paul. I mean, you can't get any better than that. You can't, you can't come away with that and say, well, you know, that's just, um, that's just Lydia's decision. She just sort of molded around. Look at, the, look at the salvation of Paul. Paul was going to Damascus with the authority in hand from Rome and the Sanhedrin to capture, seize, and incarcerate and ultimately ex- execute the, the apostles and anyone who were part of the way, the church of Jesus Christ. But Christ showed up and what? He regenerated him. Paul had zeal according to the law. Paul had a, a passion for the things of God. Paul loved the law of Moses. He loved the promise of Messiah. And when God took the scales off of him spiritually, off of his spiritual eyes, he saw and he beheld and he worshiped and he rejoiced. And he got up off the ground, got back on that horse and was led in physical blindness though he had spiritual sight to Damascus, knocked on the door of the very man he was going to arrest and began to want to preach that day the goodness of Jesus Christ. This is a supernatural work of God. And that's not just my take on Paul's testimony. That's Paul's testimony. That's Paul's testimony. 
you know. So that that's how I and I know I'm probably talked a little too long on that, but that's that's how I answer that. Let's don't add to what the scripture doesn't say, and let's put things in perspective. And we've got a lot of work in our culture to erase a lot of bad language because I think it's sometimes teachers and pastors' fault because they just use terms without truly teaching what they mean, and people just go away with it and um, make up their own conclusion. They infer too much and implicate too much outside of the realm of the authority of Scripture. But um, what are some other what are some other texts? I know we've been in some texts in, well, in the last few weeks, and uh, let's let's hit some of those with the time we have I, left. I think the yeah the biblical, the biblical doctrine or data for irresistible grace, effectual calling, is overwhelming yes. that God actually regenerates, makes a makes a dead sinner alive, which causes him when he's alive to walk in the ways of the Lord. It becomes a new species, right? The heart of stone is taken out. Interesting you mentioned in Lydia. I think that's a great passage. Yes. Um, I was just looking at that. Um, interesting though, in in the in the original, what it says. Um, uh, from the original, literally reads, while Lydia continued to listen, in perfect tense, used there. So she was repeatedly listening. And then when it says, uh, opened her heart, uh, the area is indicative. God, once for all, once for all, opened her heart Amen. to have her apply her mind to the things that were being said by Paul. <laughs> but I think, you know, it, it, yeah, it's beautiful. That is um, good. Through, I, I think, through a, a second point, through re- regeneration, that we know that the hidden things are, are revealed. Only through regeneration, irresistible right. calling, right. um, irresistible grace, sexual calling. We see that in the uh, the reason for parables, right? Yes. You know, they asked Jesus in, in Matthew 13, why do you speak in parables? Jesus said, well, uh, to you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted, just has not been granted. Same with uh, Peter's proclamation, his confession, the rock of his confession, right? You were the Christ, the Son of the living God, that came from the Father in heaven, not by flesh and, and bone. But a really good one that I mentioned before, um, I think that, that really um, defines uh, beautifully the doctrine of irresistible grace and the election is uh, Jesus' um, when he sent out the 70 or 72. Um, you know, bearing reading there. But in Luke 10, 21 and 22, um, Jesus rejoiced, it says, when, when they came back. He just steps out and he prayed. He rejoiced. Yes. Um, he says, I'm glad, uh, Cairo, I'm glad. I, I take joy for your sake. I was not there. Uh, so that you may believe, right? Um, yes. I mean, we see that one of the places, another place where he rejoiced, John eleven fifteen. But here he says, um, he rejoices because it says, "You, Father, has hidden these things, have hidden these things from the wise and intelligence, intelligent, and have revealed them to infants." Yes, Father, this was well pleasing in your sight. Yes. No one knows the Son except Father, yes. and who the Father is, except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal, right? Yes. Reveal Him. So we see that that divine information. That salvific grace, once it's given, the response is irresistible. With Lydia, with <laughs> with the other examples, uh, and we'll see in a second with John six, it's irresistible. Yes. You do come, you do, and he irresistibly calls, and it's always effectual. When when he irresistibly calls, inwardly calls, it's always effectual. We were talking about the calls, and you know the ones who hear. But it's foolishness to them. It's not a faith. It's just foolishness. Yes. But the one that God makes alive, it's the power for salvation. So I think two, uh, another two, I think, um, sets of passages, and we could look, really look at these two, is, is in Romans 8 and John 6. Yeah. And I think, um, while we look at Romans 8 first, and um, now, of course, we don't. We're not going to go through the whole order of salvation. You know, we can spend. We can, we, we can do a show just on. Yeah, we we'll do a show uh, on actually, that in the future. Actually, we can do a show on each on each of the five verbs in the in the order salutos. Um, I like the beginning. We know that God causes all things to work together for the good for those who love God, who are called yes. according to His purpose. I made this point before. The the the. English pronoun his is not in the Greek text. So in the Greek, it's more pointed, I think. Yes. 
called according to purpose. Boom. I mean, it's so pointed. And in 29, for those whom he foreknew or foreloved, he also predestined to conform to the image of his son in order that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And then verse 30 and 31, yeah. and these whom he predestined or predetermined, or Izo, um, predetermined beforehand, he also called. Now we know this call is irresistible and effectual because follow the verbs. They're linked together. That's why we call it the golden chain of salvation. Yes. For those also he called, uh, these whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also uh, glorified. And we talked about why it's in the past tense, that he's futuristic, a future uh, prolific. He's so convinced that you will be glorified. He puts it in the past tense, puts it in the areas like all the other verbs. And then in 39, Nothing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, because that link, everyone who was called had been predestined, had been foreloved, that all those who are called, you will be justified, you will be glorified, right? right? That's right. There is no separation there. So according to Paul, this calling results in justification. This calling results in glorification, and it has its basis on the love of God. Yeah, that's right. Praise God for that. A real, a real quick grammar lesson, brother. Um, in that word for calling, is it akalasan? Is that how's that? Uh, I think is the word there. I've heard people recently say, "Well, see that call. That word means to invite." So Jesus, uh, the Scripture says, He invites. God invites. But the problem that, that, that we have with that, and it's, you know, it's obvious, it's obvious, it's common sense obvious just in syntax. But yes, the word may be call or invite, but the context gives us the meaning of that. So all that, let's just use the word invite, all that are invited, all who he invited, he justified. So that shows an irresistible call. So if he calls and invites, they are justified. And if they are justified, they are glorified. So just a little grammar lesson there on context. We know that we don't use the loose, you know, the loose definition of terms outside of their context because context rules. So I don't know if you have anything else to say about that or if I was wrong or what. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It, here's the thing with the term. Yeah, the term is kalao. That's the base term, which is just a normal term for call. But in salvation context, yeah. it's always the um, um, it, it, it's pointing to the effectual calling. Um, uh, it, it's like choosing, but in a salvation context, um, and and that really that's what it means. I mean, yeah, you can say it means invite. It also means the name. You can you know use that to name something. But my goodness, folks, you know, learn basic hermeneutics. <laughs> Words are not defined yes. merely on a linguistic pl- uh, plane. But it's defined within a context. Yes. Because someone can go to Matthew 23, many are called. Well, you know, fewer chosen. Yeah, that's a distinction there. But obviously, the chosen is differentiated from the many, many, um, the many are called, the fewer chosen. Obviously, context rules. Context is the king here. So really, ones that say invite, I mean, would they be consistent? Look at every place that uh, Kalao is used and say, oh, that means invite. Um, you know, I think it's used in the in the, in the the Greek New Testament, gosh, it seems like, like, I think like 150 times, just the, the, the term. Um, and it has a variety of applications. So yeah. my goodness, to say it just means invite? Yeah. Come on. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's a poor, it's a poor, herm, it's a very poor hermeneutic. And uh, you know what? Pastors who listen to this, Lord bless us all who are pastors and teachers, and you know, we, we need to do a good job teaching. We don't have to give Greek lessons. We don't even have to be Greek scholars, but we got to at least understand how to do basic English syntax and prayerfully help our church learn to read the sentences in the Bible so that God—just uh, get them to read it so that God can teach them. And that's who teaches. God teaches. And also, if you're going to say called means a, a non-effect in Romans eight thirty, called means kaleo uh, means actually actually a non-effectual, non-irresistible calling. 
Paul says, but those who are called, they're yeah. justified. They're justified, yep. So That's what I was... <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, what, what, is, what in the world are you talking to? Right. I'm um, talking about um, uh, John 6. John 6. Um, why is that significant? And where do we go? Where, where do we look at? Well, what we're, what we're seeing here is that the call of God, this is the effectual call. This is the answer. If you, if you go to John 8, you go to John 12, you see how the Jews, they would say they believed, and then Jesus would say, you don't believe. Uh, we'd see all the way through Paul's ministry where people would, you know, they could not believe, they could not see, they refused to believe, whatever the terms they use there. The reason people do not believe, according to, Matt, to, to Jesus in John 6, almost in Matthew 22, because you, you mentioned it earlier, uh, is that it, it, he tells us, all that the Father gives me will come. So there's there's some things happening there, and Jesus expresses the power of God's effectual work of redemption. Those who are given to the Son, and we could have a have a broadcast on this as well. We should be taking our own questions, brother. But uh, you know, we Jesus has people who are given to him, and the Scripture says it's those for whom he died. When he atoned on the cross, he atoned for those that had been given to him. And so those who hear the gospel proclamation have been and, and come to Christ. And that, that word come there means to believe. That, that's the, the, the context there, those who believe in Christ. Here we have Jesus talking just after he had fed the 5,000 plus, and they came after him and wanted to what? They wanted more bread. And they say, oh, master, teacher, you know, how did you get here? When did you come here? And he turns to them and he rebukes them and says, do not labor for the bread that perishes, but for the food for the food that perishes, but labor for the bread that endures into eternal life. And then he, comm- then he proclaims himself that bread that comes down from heaven that gives life. And they say, well, what sign do you bring? They wanted the bread out of the Ark of the Covenant. They wanted the bread uh, to prove that Jesus had something that was imperishable in his hands. No, he is the imperishable bread. That was a sign that pointed to Christ, the, 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 you know, the, the story of the manna that was in the Ark of the Covenant, which was a legend anyway. It wasn't even biblical. So this is all that's happening there. The Pharisees and the Jews are upset with Jesus. They're just driven to despair. Then he tells them, that not only will those he, that they can't come unless the Father gives, but that those that the Father do give will come, and then whoever comes can never be lost. They can never go away. This is irresistible. This is an irresistible work of God, whereby He gives you to Jesus, and you can't escape. And here's the cool part: you don't want to escape because He's not coming here to do His own will. He says, "But the One who sent me." And this is the will of the One who sent me. Verse thirty-nine of chapter six: that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. And we could we could go from there. I don't know what else you <laughs> you want me to say, but let's uh let's let's work through these oh, let's work um, through this text right here, brother. Um yeah, um I, I it's hard to quote thirty verse thirty seven without quoting verse thirty five. Yep. Christ says I'm the bread of life. And yep. whoever um is interesting because you made a very good point. Coming is tantamount to believing. Believing, that's eating what it his, means. Uh, eating his flesh, drinking his blood, coming to him, hearing, they're all synonymously, uh, contextually uh, connected. It's trusting, it's believing. Yes. You know, plus, they're all participles in John's literature. It's beautiful, showing the ongoing faith. He that is coming, uh, ergomenos, he that is coming to me, uh, shall never, never, not an impossibility, hunger. Right, and he who is pistuion, uh, he who is believing in me, will never, never, not any possibility, go hunger. Yeah. And then he says, "But some of you don't believe. Yep. Some of you here do not believe." Now, in verse twenty-seven, he explains why all that the Father gives me. This is why some of you don't believe. Only all that the Father gives to me. Only the one the Father gives to Christ. Yeah. All that the one the Father gives to me will. Come, will come. Heck, say future indicative, and the one who comes to me uh, will never, never. Ume ekbalo exo. Never, never. Not a possibility. Will I? Yeah. Will I cast them out? For I come down to heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. A beautiful distinction of the two members of the Trinity before time. Yes. He, he's willing. Him. He's willing something. 
or he's submitting to the Father's will before the Incarnation. It's beautiful. In verse 39, then he defines the will. All that he has given me, right? The same group. Didokin, the same group, perfect tense. All the one that he has given me, right? I lose nothing but raise it up the last day. Irresistibly, all that the ones who come to the Father, or that the Father gives, Christ says Christ, he says they, they don't think about it, they don't ponder about it. He says they will come. Yes. The indicative, it's, it's a presentation of certainty. They will come. And he says the will of the Father is that of all that come irresistibly, I lose nothing but raise it, right? The neuters use, uh, defining the group, I raise it up at the last day. Yes. It's beautiful presentation of not only who Christ died for, you know, only the ones that the Father gave him, but it shows when the Father gives you to Christ, you do come. Yes. It's effectual. It leads to salvation. That's right. And the last verse um, we can look at is... um, Verse 44. Yeah, because it deals with... It's the same group. You cannot syntactically disconnect the group in 644 and the ones... um, um, uh, the the recipients in 44 and in 37, 38, and 39. You can't. You can't disconnect the same group. Yeah. Um, no one can. That's how literally reads. Yes. Uh, Udes, no one. Uh, Udemai, no one has the ability. No one has the ability to come to me unless the Father who draws, Elko, <laughs> draws him, um, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, last week we went over the term uh, Helco, uh, yes. translated draw, we saw the lexical significance, the, the lexical semantic mm-hmm. of, of that particular word. I'll, I'll just quote one a very good reference, Kettle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, which is a standard scholarly work. And I would uh, really, I would suggest, uh, or I would, I would really suggest to anyone listening to do a lexical study on this word, a syntactical lexical study on this word, and you'll see the implications to this word lexically states, you know, the Kettle's Theological Dictionary states that this this term here, this verb here, Elko, in John, specifically in John 6.44, we don't want to abuse lexicons um, um, because they basically are all in agreement. Listen to the definition, to compel by irresistible authority. Yeah. Um, this is H. Strong. Here's how he defines it. God's saving grace and effectual calling are irresistible, not in the sense that they are never resisted, but in the sense they are never successfully resisted. Yes. And, of course, we can look at uh, Fadag and, I mean, the lexical um, uh, entries to this this word, the semantics of this word is irrefutable. Uh, Lao and Nita, to drag or pull by physical force. And you just, you, you pointed out, it's not kicking and screaming. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. God changes your will. You want to go. That's what the yeah. irresistible authority, irresistible calling actually is, you know. Yes. And um, uh, Dag is a very definitive uh, definition of the term, too. So what we're saying here is that only the ones that the Father gives the price come, and they do come. And then Jesus says, no one can even come to me unless the Father irresistibly gives them the ability, and they do come because he says, I raise them up at the last day. And God has the right to intrude upon man's rebellion. He has that right. He has the sovereign right to give him a new heart. He does what he pleases, and his purpose will always be established. Amen. Amen. Well, brother, that's that's all of our time. That went by very fast. We should just have a part two, and go for another hour and talk about this some more. But it's um, it, it, this like I said in the beginning, there's not enough time to exhaustively or effectively teach these things in these podcasts. But what they're for is to get your questions answered 
to get you, you know, engaging in the material and, and understand this, these podcasts and other resources that are available to you. If you, if you need more details, if you want to talk, if you want to refute this, please go to theologyanswers.com. Send us a message. Let us know what you're thinking. We care about you. We know that you are a real person with a soul and we want you to have the joy that comes only through being given to the son by the father. We want you to understand it and to have it. And if it is the Lord's will, you will see it. And so as, especially those of you who are not in a biblical church or have no local assembly because you're too far away or you're shut in, please let us know how we can help you and pray for you. We're online, uh, you know, a lot. We, we are available to answer emails and we are also are willing to uh, connect you with other brothers and sisters in Christ from around the country who are very, very available to your spiritual needs to help you grow. And, and we can, we can stand behind the people that we would send to you. Um, but this, this is not, I mean, above all things, be in the Bible, read John's gospel, read John's gospel every day. It takes you 90 minutes to read John's gospel from start to finish at a slow pace. And if you can't do 90 minutes at one sitting, read 20 minutes at a time, read 10 minutes at a time or whatever it takes. But the Lord, if you look at the very next verse in that, in that text of John, of John six, and he goes, it is written in the prophets and they will be all taught by God. Everyone who has heard from the Father and learned comes to me. So you want to know, how can I come to Christ if God has not given me to Christ? The way he will give you to Christ, if you are indeed to be given to Christ, is to learn by the Spirit of God through the Scripture. It's the only thing, Romans ten seventeen, that God uses to draw his people effectually to himself. So with that... I say go well and rest well on the finished work of Christ. We love you all. And for information about our ministry, you can go to um, anchoringfaith.org or you can go to christiandefense.org. And that's Brother Edwards' website. There's a lot of great articles there. Again, christiandefense.org. And you can pick up some of his books and resources. Please reach out to us, theologyanswers.com. We love you. Lord bless.